Okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Let's get going here. Let's try to get back on to schedule. I think we're here. All right. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, that would be page 847, 847. Our text will be verses 1 through 11. So, you've seen the, probably seen the red carpet rolled out for people at different special events. Have you seen that? It's usually rolled out to honor dignitaries such as presidents. Uh, it's, it's kind of made its way now to honor, quote, very important people such as actors and actresses. You can see how excited I am about that. But they normally you'll see this red carpet rolled out at the Oscars or, or whatever. I'm not sure where the practice came from. One source says that a great, great ancient ruler of an empire once paid a visit to his brother-in-law on New Year's Day. And to celebrate this event, the brother-in-law carpeted the road between his house and the palace with gold fabric and rich red Velvets, so that the royal staff that accompanied this emperor would not have to touch the ground. Today, we say roll out the red carpet or give them the red carpet treatment to indicate the giving of honor or prestige to the people who would walk on that carpet. Just over 2,000 years ago, the city of Jerusalem, in a sense, rolled out the red carpet, not for a president, not for an actor, but for Jesus. Why? Why would they do that? For a man from Nazareth. And that's what our text will answer this morning. Mark chapter 11, follow along with me as I read from God's Word, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethany and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So last week, if you weren't here, we looked at the text just prior to Mark chapter 11, at the end of Mark chapter 10, and we saw a blind man that Jesus healed who had referred to Jesus twice in the text as the son of David. And if you weren't here uh, we missed you, first of all, and we would encourage you to go online and listen or download that particular sermon because it's important to understand what that title means for Jesus. It's important to understand to some degree the Davidic covenant 
And that got us back into the Old Testament. But let me just say this. Jesus, as the son of David, is the heir to David's throne. He is the king that the nation of Israel was waiting for. The one that was promised in the Old Testament. And they were looking for this king who would rule and reign over his kingdom. The first ten chapters of Mark, and that brings us now to this text, the first ten chapters of Mark, beloved, that we've gone through, have been devoted to the events that occurred in Jesus' three years of ministry among the nation of Israel. Okay, that's the first ten chapters. They cover basically three years of Jesus' ministry. But the last six chapters of Mark, beginning with this one, chapter 11, are spent explaining the details of Jesus' final week, week on earth. Ten chapters to explain three years, six chapters to explain one week. Because this week is very, very significant. So the account we just read, just so you can get a timeline in your mind, of Jesus entering Jerusalem occurred on Sunday. It occurred on Sunday. And as the story unfolds, he will be arrested, put on trial, wrongly condemned, and crucified on Friday of the very same week. The very same week. At the time that Jesus came to Jerusalem, just so you can get some historical context, there would have been an enormous number of Jews, possibly a few million, maybe more, gathered at Jerusalem who had come from all parts of the ancient world to celebrate the Passover together, which was their annual custom. So there's a lot of Jews in the city of Jerusalem celebrating an annual feast. That's what you need to know. The timing of Jesus' entry was intentional. It was intentional. He didn't just pick any day. He picked this day at this time in the year. And it was meant to communicate an important message to literally the gathered nation of Israel at that moment in history in that city. Additionally, this is is only the second event as we've moved through Mark that is recorded in all four Gospels. And so that's important to know. Just so you know, when you look at all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they don't all record every event of Christ's life. The last event that we saw that was recorded by all four Gospels was the feeding of the 5,000. This is the second event. And what that tells you or what it should say to you is this is rather significant. All four Gospels make an effort to record the entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem at this time of the Passover feast. So, this morning, if you have an outline, well, if you have a bulletin, you have an outline on the inside. You'll see there's an outline here, and we are going to consider four details about what most people call the triumphal entry. What we just read, you'll see it probably in the heading of your Bibles, is usually referred to as the triumphal entry. We're going to look at four details about that triumphal entry so that ultimately we might better understand the significance of this historical event. That's what we're doing this morning. That's where we're going. You ready? Okay, don't miss this. Stay awake. Don't miss it. It's it's important. All right, the first important detail or event about this triumphal entry is the prophecy. The prophecy. That's what we're going to look at first. Now, you might be asking, what prophecy? Well, what appears on the surface, at least 
in the reading that we just gave in Mark's Gospel, to be an irrelevant, kind of an irrelevant, but rather detailed story about Jesus' interest in securing a colt that he used to ride into Jerusalem is in reality a really big detail and a very relevant prophetic event. Jesus' request for and ride on a colt was not because Jesus was simply tired and needed some form of transportation to get him the rest of the way into the city. Okay, so this, that's not what's going on. If you were to just read Mark, and that was the only gospel you had, it appears you could maybe speculate that Jesus was just tired. So he told his men, hey, go get me a ride. Go get me a colt, bring him back, because I just can't make it the rest of the way. He doesn't say that, but you could certainly speculate that. But that is not what's going on. In fact, as we look at the other Gospels that record this event, such as Matthew, Matthew's Gospel records and says, Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, referring to this event, referring to the getting and gathering of the colt and Jesus riding in, it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, by the way, daughter of Zion is basically saying to the people of the nation of Israel. Okay, So when you see that phrase, daughter of Zion, to the people of Israel. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. Or, as John's Gospel records it in John 12, verses 14 and 15, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Colt is just another word for a young horse, a baby horse, in a sense. And so in this case, it is of the horse family, a young donkey. A young donkey, one that has not been ridden before. What Matthew and John both referenced and reported as being fulfilled by Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey was a section of prophetic scripture written by the prophet Zechariah approximately 500 years prior to the events that we just read about in Mark chapter 11. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, page 7. 9-7 will bring you to Zechariah chapter 9. And as you turn there, let me just remind you, Zechariah is one of the 12 minor prophets. It is the second to the last book of the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Sometimes that's helpful if you know that because you can flip your Bible open to Matthew, that's where the New Testament begins, and then you can move to the left. If you do, you'll run into Malachi and then Zechariah. Zechariah. Now, it's important to know something about this book, so let me give you a little information. It was written to the nation of Israel sometime after a number of Jews had returned from their captivity in Babylon. And they were returning to their ruined but once great city, Jerusalem. The Jewish people were discouraged at the time that when they returned, and they had stopped working to rebuild their temple. Their temple was their sacred place of worship. It is where the sacrificial system took place. It is where they worshipped the God of Israel. That temple 
that they were rebuilding had been destroyed by the invading Babylonian armies that came in and took them captive. And it was destroyed in 587 B.C. Now, on a side note, just something you should be aware of, the temple was eventually rebuilt by the people. They were encouraged by Zechariah to rebuild the temple, although it was not rebuilt to the same beauty and magnificence, magnificence that it originally had. It was remodeled in 20 B.C. by King Herod, one of the kings of the Herod dynasty, and that was the station it was in at the time of Jesus' life. But it was then destroyed again in A.D. 70. This is after Christ left, when the Jews rose up against the Roman government and the Roman army came in and crushed the rebellion and leveled the temple once again. And it has not been rebuilt. It has not been rebuilt. There remains a desire to this day among religious Jews to see the temple rebuilt on the same site that it has always existed, but the site where it previously stood, which is called the Temple Mount, is occupied by the Muslim shrine, Dome of the Rock. Dome of the Rock. Any attempt by Israel to remove or even interfere with what the Muslims believe is a holy place in order to rebuild the Jewish temple would certainly result in an all-out war among the Jewish people and the Muslim nations. So just to give you some connection to the 21st century, that dome on the rock and that temple mount that sometimes comes up in the news within the city of Jerusalem is rooted all the way back to the Old Testament. Keep all this in mind as we begin to talk more and more about the temple in the coming weeks and this fact that the rebuilding of Israel's temple is a future reality according to the Bible. It is a future reality. It will happen. And by the way, I, just, I recommend books. I recommended a few last week. This one is called Understanding End Times Prophecy. Understanding End Times Prophecy. I'll leave it up here if you want to take a look at it by Paul Benware. I highly recommend it. And one of the reasons I do is people are very confused about what will occur, occur in the end times as God's plan continues to unfold for his world and for the nation of Israel and for the church. This book does a good job of explaining it in a way that I think you don't have to have a, a seminary degree, you don't have to be super sophisticated. It explains it in easy terminology. And it makes sense. So if you've ever wondered about all that stuff, it makes sense of Revelation, Daniel, and all these books, and all these prophecies regarding the end times. So check that out after the service. I would encourage you to get it. Back to Zechariah. This prophecy is in Zechariah. Zechariah acted as a cheerleader for the Jewish nation and encouraged and exhorted them to rebuild the temple. But he also gave the nation a long-term hope by prophesying in that book about God's complete and glorious restoration of the nation of Israel at some point in the future. Understand at this point, Israel had been devastated by her enemies. And what they had come back to was nothing like their former glory. And Zechariah, through God, encouraged them, or God through Zechariah better said, encourage them that one day their nation would be restored. 
Zechariah, in fact, looked forward in time and described to the people what he foresaw. Israel's Messiah would return to the temple, set up his earthly kingdom, and rule and reign over the world from the city of Jerusalem. That was the promise. That was their hope. The future Messiah, God's appointed and anointed king and promised deliverer of Israel, is the person that Zechariah is referring to in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So now look down at your Bibles and see this prophecy and understand it better in its context. Speaking to the nation of Israel, the prophet Zechariah, speaking for God, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Sound familiar? It should. Because that is exactly what occurred when Jesus entered Jerusalem. A 500 year old prophecy literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ and unmistakably identifying Him as the King that had been promised by God and anticipated and longed for by the nation of Israel now for centuries. So the first important detail of this event we looked at was the prophecy. The next one is the path. The path. Look back at Mark chapter 11 with me. Mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 7. It says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. Stop right there. Jesus mounts the colt after his disciples threw their cloaks. And all that is, guys, is their outer garments. It, it's, not, it's more than a coat, but it, they had an inner garment and they had an outer garment. It's like a coat, but not exactly because it, it was very long. So they took off their outer garment or their cloaks and they threw it over the donkey. Well, they probably did this, doesn't, the text doesn't say, but they probably just did this to provide Jesus a type of saddle okay, for him to ride on. So he wouldn't be riding bareback, but he'd be riding on their cloth on, on the donkey. There's really nothing strange about that. But then Mark tells us that many were laying their outer garments on the road. On the road. And Luke puts it this way in Luke chapter 19, verse 36. And as he rode along, that is, as Jesus rode along on this colt, they spread their cloaks on the road. They spread their cloaks on the road. In other words, Jesus' path to Jerusalem, as he entered the city, ended up being covered with people's clothing, specifically their cloaks. Now, what is that all about? No doubt, that seems strange to the 21st century mind, especially those of you who have a high regard for your fine threads. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is no way I would remove my clothing and lay it on the dirt while a donkey tramples over the top of it. That just doesn't even sound reasonable. But this was an ancient practice reserved for those who occupied the highest positions of power. And we have one biblical example, another one of this, in 2 Kings chapter 9, Verse 13, 
when Jehu discovered that God had chosen him to be the king of Israel, the text says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Jehu is king. One writer says it this way, They unwrapped their loose cloaks from their shoulders and stretched them along the rough path to form a momentary carpet as he approached. That's what's going on. Now, this is not normal behavior in the sense that it would be done just for anyone who was coming in to Jerusalem. The way, though, that you see them treating Jesus says volumes about how the Jewish people were viewing him at that very moment in history. He was definitely more than just a man from Nazareth. Certainly even more than just a prophet. Now look again back at Mark chapter 11, verse 8. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. McLean, a book I've recommended to you, The Greatness of the Kingdom by Alva J. McLean, he writes, To this carpet of clothing they added the further tribute of covering his path with branches of trees. In John's Gospel, he records that it was palm branches. John 12, verse 13. This was a common demonstration in the East to welcome a king, a conqueror, or a deliverer. And maybe you don't know this, but often this Sunday, or the Sunday that we just read about, Christ's triumphal entry, is referred to as Palm Sunday. And now you understand why. They were laying branches, palm branches, waving them, laying them down on this path of clothing as Jesus entered as a way to pay tribute and honor to a king. That's what was going on. Now, I I looked in the archives and were fortunate that someone had a camera at the time and we were able to get a picture of what this might have actually did look like. There's Jesus. That's the one on the donkey, in case you don't know. But no, this is the idea. You can see this kind of would be the picture. Many gathered around palm branches and their cloaks being laid down in front of him as he rode towards Jerusalem. Now, Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem on a red carpet, but he did on a a green one. And if they had TV and Internet back then, I guarantee you, beloved, this would have been the top story of the night and it would have had the most hits on the Internet. It would have been a sensation. This was big news. It was big news. And that brings us third to the praise. The praise. We looked at the prophecy. We looked at the path. Now let's consider the praise. Mark 11, verse 9. It says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. We talked about that last week when we talked about the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Now here it is worth considering the other Gospels on this specific point. That is the praise. And I read these to you last week, but I want you to see them again and think about them. Matthew 21.9 records this type of praise. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, 
Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke chapter 19, verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And finally, John chapter 12, verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, there are some that downplay the significance of this praise, suggesting that the crowds didn't really view Jesus as the Messiah or the promised deliverer of Israel. And they will point things out like this. The phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, was a common expression offered to the pilgrims or travelers that came to Jerusalem to celebrate the various religious feasts that were held there for the nation of Israel, such as Passover, which was occurring or going to occur during that week. Now, that is true. In other words, when people would come in, they would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in a sense, it was another religious traveler coming to the city, the great city, and they were representing the God of Israel. There is, there is truth to that statement. But it is difficult to understand the praise in this context as anything less than an acknowledgement or, at minimum, a hopeful belief by the crowds that Jesus was the son of David, the heir to David's throne, the prophesied king of the Old Testament, and that the establishment of the kingdom would soon become a reality because the true king of Jerusalem had just arrived on his colt. In other words, when you consider all that was said and not try to isolate a particular statement, it is very difficult to support the idea that the intent of all of this praise was just to give a warm and respectful greeting to Jesus. It was much more than that, beloved. And I think it is worth considering the Pharisees' response to the praise that Jesus was receiving. Look back now, we'll, we'll reconsider Luke 19 and the praise that takes place there and what Luke says in verse 37 of chapter 19 through 40. I'll just read it to you again. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees understood this to be much more than a typical welcome of a pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. If it was just that, there'd be no reason for them to be in such an uproar and be asking Jesus to tell his boys to shut up. 
They were uncomfortable with the people acknowledging and praising Him as the King. That was the issue. And in their rebellious unbelief, if you know anything about the Pharisees and if you've been with us as we've moved through the book of Mark, you know this. They had already made up their mind that Jesus was nothing more than just a carpenter from Nazareth. In fact, they previously suggested that He was empowered by Satan to do the very miracles that they saw Him perform and could not deny. And so they demanded that Jesus tell His disciples to stop. In other words, that type of praise is not appropriate for you. But Jesus considered the praise to be absolutely fitting for the King who came in the name of the Lord. One writer says it this way, Jesus responded that there must be some proclamation that He is the Messiah. If not, even inanimate objects, lifeless stones, would be called on to testify for Him. All history had pointed toward this single spectacular event when the Messiah publicly presented Himself to the nation And God desired that this fact be acknowledged. And so it was. And so it was. And that, beloved, brings us to the last point. We have the prophecy. We have the path. We have the praise. Finally, the preview. Look back at the text in Mark chapter 11. And he entered Jerusalem. And he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Beloved, Jesus' first order of business when he comes into the great city of Jerusalem, the city of the king, was to go to the temple. That was the first thing he did. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. He didn't stop to grab something to eat, he didn't take a break. He immediately went to the temple and he took a look around. Now, with all the excitement and hoopla that we just read about in Mark chapter 1 through 10, the praise and the clothes coming off and the tree branches being thrown down and the hallelujahs and Hosanna, all that stuff, hosannas and blessed is the king and all this, it almost seems a anticlimactic, verse 11. It's, it's like a disappointing end after a really big build-up. You expect something grand to happen when he enters the city. But what this is, is the final scene of that day. It's the final scene of that day. And it is really the precursor to the grand display of Jesus' God-given authority as the Son of David, as the Messiah, as the king of Israel, as the Lord of Israel's temple, when he comes back the following day, which is verse 15, and immediately returns to the temple to basically clean house. And when I say clean house, he's not removing the dust, he's removing the dirt of the people that have infiltrated his temple. He literally, beloved, takes over the temple and begins throwing people out who had corrupted the holy and sacred place of God. Appropriate for the king. 
It is also worth noting here. So there's a sense here that at the end of Mark chapter 1 or verse 11, it's almost like a, uh, a soap opera where they, or a, a good story where they leave you hanging. The king has arrived. He comes in. He takes a look around at his place. And you have to come back next week to find out what happens next. That's exactly what's going on. He's about to do business. And that's where we pick up next week as he cleanses that temple. But I, I thought you should also consider Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It is another prophet of the Old Testament. It is with one of the 12 minor prophets. And this is why I've said, and I'll say again, our lack of knowledge of the Old Testament is sad in the Christian church. We miss a lot of the substance and significance of what is written about in the New Testament because we are absolutely clueless about the old. And people will even be told that the old is not for you. Just read the new. Beloved, that's not true. There is much to gain from reading and knowing what the Old Testament has said. In fact, the New Testament really is built upon what the Old Testament has established. So here we go again. We're back in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Stop there. Interesting. Mark referenced the first part of this prophetic text, and that's what it is. It's looking forward to a time that this event would take place. Mark referenced the very first part in the opening of his gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. And he connected its fulfillment. That is, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before you. He connected that fulfillment to John the Baptist, who he is saying in Mark was the messenger who prepared the way for Jesus Christ. The second part of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Then the Lord will come to his temple. Now, without getting into a lot of detail and hopefully maybe to spur your interest, the ultimate fulfillment of this text will actually happen during the second return of Christ or the second coming of Christ. The temple that Malachi refers to is one that will be built in the future and is described in detail. In Ezekiel chapter 40 through verse chapter 48. Chapters 40 through chapter 48. This temple will be permanently occupied by Christ in the coming millennial kingdom. But his temporary presence and activity at the temple that existed in Jerusalem at his first coming could certainly be understood as a partial or initial fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy about the Messiah and what would come ultimately. So just something to think about, some thoughts to think about there. Now, beloved, as we wrap this up, if your knowledge of biblical history stopped at what occurred on that day we just looked at in more detail, the day we refer to as the triumphal entry, a day of great significance in the life of Jesus, certainly, but especially in the nation of Israel. Then it would be very hard to imagine how the rest of the week actually turned out. 
For on Sunday, the crowds were crying out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Laying down their cloaks, covering His path with branches in honor. But on Friday, of that very same week, beloved, they were crying out, Crucify Him! And when Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief religious leaders answered, We have no king but Caesar. Knowing the outcome like we do explains why, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and this is where the triumphal entry is recorded, but Luke adds this, in the midst of what appears, beloved, to be a cheerful celebration as the king has entered into his city, it says that Jesus cried over the city. So here he is, he's coming in, Riding in on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. There's great shouts of praise, honor to his name. And Jesus is crying. These are not tears of joy, but they are tears of sorrow because he knew that the praise would be short-lived. As the crowds gathered there in Jerusalem would soon turn against Him, reject Him as their King, and call for His death. The red carpet, in a sense, that was rolled out on Sunday became a blood-stained road, His own blood, as He walked that road to the cross On Friday. The events of this week, beloved, demonstrate, really, when you consider all that takes place in such a short period of time, it demonstrates how corrupt the human heart really is. How deceptive sin is. How spiritually sick we really are. And how desperately we need a Savior and the new heart that He gives us through Christ. Beloved, God sent His beloved royal Son to His people. And His people sent their King back in a body bag. Think about that. This morning, we celebrate together Communion. We celebrate a Passover meal that Jesus transformed into a memorial that would remind the church of exactly what happened to Jesus on Friday. This meal took place Thursday evening of that week. And we'll get there eventually in Mark. But let me remind you, reading from Mark's Gospel, of what Jesus said on that eve, on the night before He would face 
the turn of His people and the rejection of the nation of Him as their King and would call for His murder. He says in Matthew 26, verse 26, Now, as they were eating, and that was Jesus and His disciples, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat. This is My body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was telling his men what would occur the next day as his body would be offered up on a cross for his people. As his blood would be spilt and his life exhausted and taken for the sins of his people. That's what took place on that Thursday night as he was telling them, you continue to do this. Every time you remember this meal and you have this meal, you will remember what I did for you the following day as I gave myself for a people that stood there and yelled, crucify him. And yet just a few days earlier, they were hailing him as their king. So we have much to be grateful for as we celebrate this meal. In a moment, I don't know if there's anything in here. There isn't. But in a moment, they will come around and, and pass out a, a little cracker and a little cup of juice as we memorialize, as we remember this Jesus, the King who came, the King who was crucified, the King who laid down His life that we might have forgiveness of sins. And oh, beloved, do we need that? Do we need that? So as the elements are passed around, remember that this is a meal for those who have placed their faith in that sacrifice made on their behalf. It is not for anyone else. And so if you have never done that, don't partake. Don't partake. If you're not sure, don't partake. We would love to talk to you about that. But this meal is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who recognize Him as Lord and Messiah, as the coming King, as the Son of God, as their personal Savior, as the One who stood in their place, hung in their place, beloved, and died for sin. And so we'll pass the elements, and then at the end, we will partake together of those elements. I would just trust that during that time while the elements are being passed, go to the Lord and thank Him for that sacrifice that He made on that Friday. Let's pray. Father God, we, uh, we really stand back in amazement of all that took place in that week and we've just barely begin to look at those events and the significance of them as, as Jesus, the Son of David, entered the holy city, the city of the King. And, and even the response of the people, though it was certainly appropriate, Father, how quickly the mood and attitude among the crowds changed. Certainly there were those who 
continued to recognize him as king and trusted and believed in him and and followed him. But Father, the majority did not. The nation rejected the king they said they had been waiting for. And if that doesn't speak volumes to the nature of sin, the wickedness of sin, the deceit of sin, then I don't know what does. And yet, Jesus didn't change His mind, but went willingly to the cross and died for the sake of sinners. It is an unbelievable thing. So Father, we celebrate that every day, or we should, but we celebrate it in a special way today with the body of Christ in this local church as we partake in communion, recognizing what Christ asked His people to do, to remember His death as we partake of these elements, a simple cracker, some juice, remembering His body given for us and His blood, His life surrendered for us. We ask that You would bless it. We ask that You would work inside of our hearts, that You would continue to speak to us the truth of this event and all that it means for us as the people of God. That, Father, we would find hope. We would find rejoicing. We would find encouragement. We would find strength and endurance in knowing that Jesus laid down His life for us as we celebrate this meal. And, Father, we also remember what Paul said, that we proclaim His death until He comes. And Father, we trust in all that Your Word says and all that the prophets have proclaimed that the King is returning. And when He returns, He will come in His full power, in His full royal reign. And He will establish Himself as the King from the city of the King, and He will rule and reign in majesty on this earth. And Father, we welcome the coming of that day. Until then, Father, help us to be faithful to tell as many people as we can about this Lord Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that is available only through Him and by placing our faith and our hope and our trust in Him and Him alone to be made right with You, God. It is in our Savior's name I pray. Amen.